This is C-SPAN's First Ladies in Their Own Words podcast, listening to the voices of eight modern First Ladies. In this episode, you'll hear from the 39th First Lady of the United States, Rosalind Carter. Born Eleanor Rosalind Smith in 1927 in Plains, Georgia, she married the future president in 1946 at age 18. She was a partner to Jimmy Carter from the family peanut farm to a life in politics, serving as Georgia's First Lady from 1971 to 75, and then First Lady of the United States from 1977 to 1981. Rosalind Carter was an active campaigner during the 1976 presidential election. Here she is speaking on the campaign trail in a video released by the Carter campaign. Her schedule was grueling, almost as tough as her husband's. Yet through it all, Rosalind remained an earnest and gracious campaigner. People ask me every day, how can you stand for your husband to be in politics and everybody know everything you do? And I just tell them that we were born and raised and still live in Plains, Georgia. It has a population of 683 and everybody has always known everything I did. <laughs> and Jimmy has never had any hint of scandal in his personal or his public life. I really believe he can restore that honesty, integrity, openness, confidence in government that we so sorely need in our country today. I think he'll be a great president. That was Rosalind Carter. She arrived at the White House after the 1976 campaign with a blueprint to go to work. She was a valued political partner to her husband, Jimmy, but found that there were many obstacles facing a first lady who wanted to influence public policy. She became known as a staunch advocate for those struggling with their mental health. You'll hear directly from her, featuring footage from C-SPAN's video library. First, her work on mental health issues and why they became so important to her. A February 1977 event at the White House after President Carter signed an executive order creating a mental health commission, which she served as active honorary chair, an important early forum. Now, listen to her in her own words. As you probably know, for the past year and a half, a little more, I have campaigned all over the country. In my biographical sketch, I had a little paragraph that said that I was interested in mental health. And so everywhere I went, if people had a good program, They wanted me to see it. I had a chance to see things happening all over this country that are good. I also had saw things happening that I thought needed help. I hope for the establishment of this commission, I know that we can give some of that help. We have a chance to do great things in our country. I thought until today that I was going to be the chairperson. (laughs) And I got a little... I got a little note from somebody that says, <laughs> according to the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice and so forth, the pre- prohibits the president from appointing a close relative such as a wife to a civilian position. A civilian position may be unpaid as well as paid. Justice is advised that the 20 members of the commission, including the chair, will in fact be serving in civilian positions there is, however, no problem with your being designated as honorary chairperson. So, (laughs) I'm going to be a very active honorary chairperson. (laughs) I intend to, we're going to have, we have office space in the um, executive office building, which is very close. I will be spending um, many hours a week there. I will be traveling, uh, I will be involved in the fact-finding process, traveling over the country for hearings um, in the next six months. 
I intend to be active. The former first lady discussed her political partnership with her husband, Jimmy Carter, during a C-SPAN interview in 2013. He could, he could hardly say I'm going to be president. It was just something that was, you know, like we never, ever dreamed would happen. And, um, but it was excited. I was excited about it. I had campaigned the whole last year before the, the governor's race uh, for him, and uh, it was hard. And uh, Amy was a baby, and I didn't like to leave her all the time. Um, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I learned so much about our state. We have 159 counties. I knew the capital of every uh, county. I knew, I mean, and, and issues. In fact, that's how I got involved in mental health issues, running campaigning for Jimmy. They had our big um, mental health facility, hospital, uh, there'd been a big expose, and the, and the Mental Health Systems Act had been passed in 19... Now this was, you know, 63, and this was 1966 when Jimmy first ran for governor. Got beat that time, but we got in late because our leading Democratic candidate had a heart attack. But um, they were moving people out of the hospital because it was like 12,000 people where they had room for 3,000. It was awful. It was happening all over the country. And they were moving them out before they had any facilities for them. They had no services in the communities. And everybody started talking to me about, what will your husband do if he's elected governor of Georgia? Um, I just learned so much about what was going on. And um, I, after we lost that election, I worked four years to learn a little bit about mental health. And then the first month in office, he appointed the Governor's Commission to improve services to the mentally and emotionally handicapped. I got upset with the press, too, because they covered my mental health work, the first few meetings I had. And then they never showed up anymore. And one of the things I wanted to do was bring attention to the issue and how terrible it was and what um, few services there were. And, uh, but, and thinking just getting it out in the public. That's what I did in Georgia. Developed, developed a good program in Georgia, by the way. Um, but they just didn't come. And so one day I was walking in the down floor, downstairs floor in the White House and met this um, woman who was one of the press people. And I said, you, you don't ever cover my, nobody ever covers my meetings. In the, and she said, Ms. Carter, mental health is just not a sexy issue. <laughs> and that was, and that I didn't like. But I never did get very, very much coverage for it. But we toured the country, found out what was needed, developed uh, legislation, and uh, passed the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980. Um, it passed through Congress um, one month before Jimmy, as he says, was um, involuntarily retired from the White House, and the incoming president put it on his shelf, never implemented it. It was one of the greatest disappointments of my life. Coming up, her role as a political and policy partner to President Carter, serving a groundbreaking role as a representative of the country on foreign trips. You'll also hear her assessment of what she believes to be Jimmy Carter's greatest achievement and her memories of the Iranian hostage crisis, which consumed her husband through the last months of his presidency. I bring you greetings from Latin America and the Caribbean. 
It's a grand placer for me estar aquí. <laughs> I've done this for two weeks and I couldn't resist. But seriously, it was a good trip. This morning in Venezuela, President Pérez said to me that Jimmy's Pan American Day speech and my visit to Latin America had opened new paths in inter-American relations instead of the paternalism that has characterized the past. We are ready and eager to develop balanced, natural, normal, and equal relationships. I found goodwill and friendship everywhere I went. They love you in the Caribbean and in Latin America. And every head of state that I spoke with, without exception, agreed with me on the importance of cooperating and consulting closely on the issues that concern you, Jimmy, and that concern us all. Human rights, nuclear nonproliferation, economic development, arms control, I think we've made progress in all of these areas. I'm glad to be back home. I'm glad to be with Amy and with Jimmy. I'm going to convey all of this information that I have to Jimmy. In fact, I look forward to consulting closely with him on a regular basis. <laughs> In 1994, Rosalind Carter spoke with historian Carl Sferraza Anthony about some of her experiences as First Lady. I think my role was more one of a sounding board for Jimmy. He could explain the issues to me and um, in the process think them through. Um, and he knew I was interested in them because I had been all over the country telling people what he was going to do. And then I wanted to be sure he did it. <laughs> And, um, and I could go out into the countryside and talk to people. Presence can become very isolated. Um, and one reason is because I have such huge entourages when they go out and they can't really get answers from people. But also, people tell a president what he wants to hear. And I could, I could get information and, um, about how the energy crisis at that time was hurting people, problems of the elderly, I uh, had one woman tell me that her um, house had been taken away because she had paid for it, but her husband had taken a second mortgage on it. And in that state, there were no laws that pre prevented her husband from losing the house. Those kinds of things I could come home and bring to Jimmy. And then as he struggled with an issue, maybe something I said would help him in a make a decision. When, you, when the administration began, um, for example, and, you, and, and he was going through the process of choosing a cabinet, did you weigh in on any of those decisions, or did, did he ask your advice on various individuals? Oh, I talked about all of them. <laughs> <laughs> we had lots of um, input from people. Jimmy, would, Jimmy consulted a lot of people about who would be best for certain positions, and then we would have a, name, a list, and then he would narrow it down. I told him what I thought about people, I, which I always did with issues and so forth. I always told him, he always knew how I felt. Sometimes he took my advice and sometimes he didn't. <laughs> he made the decisions. Were you, do you think that your voice was one he tended to listen to uh, with greater, that had greater weight than perhaps some of his other advisors? Just because sometimes a spouse is not going to necessarily have the kind of outside agenda that an employee or an appointee might someday have. 
I don't know whether, on, on some things that I knew about, like mental health and women's issues and problems of the elderly and those kinds of things, he always listened to what I had to say. But there were so many issues that I didn't know about. Um, he could talk to me, for instance, we were trying to make Latin America a nuclear-free zone. So he talked to me all about the whole issue of, of um, I think the Brazilians had bought a power plant from the Germans, and we were trying to prevent that sale going through. <laughs> Didn't make very good friends in Germany. But, <laughs> but um, I, see, there's no way I could advise him on that. But I knew that he knew what he wanted to do. I knew that we wanted a nuclear-free zone, and so I, when I went to Latin America, I could talk to the head of state about it. But as far, our relationship was not one when I said, this is what you ought to do. That was never that way. I told him how I felt. I told him what I learned when I went out in the countryside or when I went to Latin America, and then he made the decision. We had so few women in Congress back then. It's been a long time since Jimmy was president. <laughs> I mean, Amy was nine years old, and last week she had a 27th birthday. <laughs> been a long time. And there were not very many women in in uh, Congress at that time. And we were working really hard to, to elect women all over the country, and working really hard to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. That was an effort that you joined um, at the, uh, in Houston, the Women's Conference. You joined Mrs. Ford and Mrs. Johnson as a, a joint effort. I, that, that was the Women's Conference, but then I knew every single legislator in every single state who was against the Equal Rights Amendment. And I called every one of them more than one time. <laughs> and I think we had two in Florida and two in Nevada somewhere, 11 in one state. If we had gotten, I think it was maybe 13, maybe 13 more votes we could have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. We really worked on it. But then we were able, we were able to get the extension through. I think that was 1978, we got the extension for ratification of four years, and then, of course, another president came in office, and that was all gone. Yeah. What about the, the tendency of the press to sort of pigeonhole people? I mean, uh, there's a, uh, was an easy, easy caricature created of Hillary Clinton and of Nancy Reagan and of Barbara Bush, of you, of all of the First Ladies. How much, how wide was the gap between the, the press perception of you and, and who you really were, who you, you felt should be conveyed to the press? I remember after Jimmy was elected, there was a whole page cartoon in the Washington Post with the Carter family, Jimmy's mother, me, and there were haystacks, we had on straw hats, and there was straw between our teeth. <laughs> and then I went from that to being the steel magnolia. And, and, but I thought that was pretty good, because steel is tough and magnolia is southern. So. <laughs> and then I was fuzzy. I was fuzzy for a while. And then I was most powerful. So I had a, a full range of images. <laughs> well, I didn't think I was any of that. Well, I was proud I was from the South. I hope I was tough. Um, I didn't think I was fuzzy. When we 
came to Washington, I knew what I wanted to do. I had worked on mental health problems while Jimmy was governor. Um, I had been the governor's wife. I had had my projects. I had entertained ambassadors instead of heads of state. I had entertained Georgia legislators instead of Congress people. Um, there was a lot um, that I had learned. And I couldn't wait to get to Washington to work on mental health because I had a chance to do it in the whole country. And in the campaign, I had a sentence in my biographical sketch saying that I was interested in mental health um, issues. And so everywhere I went in the country campaigning, uh, people would show me their mental health facilities, either because they were proud of them, a few were proud of them because they were good, mostly because they needed help. And so even before Jimmy was inaugurated, after he was elected, I had put together a mental health task force, President's Commission on Mental Health. Jimmy announced it. We'd been in the White House less than a month. I'd been working on the Equal Rights Amendment. I wanted to get that ratified. Um, I, I had worked, I think maybe my um, interest in problems of the elderly came in the campaign because when you're campaigning, people in a community will take you where there are crowds of people, and they always take you to a Golden Age club or a convalescent home because there are a lot of people there, and... Most of the time, they were Democrats. <laughs> and they would want me to go visit them, and so I became really interested in, in those. I worked on immunization. I'd had a good immunization program in Georgia. Worked on immunization. So I, I knew I had an agenda when I got to the White House. I knew what I wanted to do. I, I was frustrated because I couldn't always get the kind of publicity I wanted to about my issues. In fact, I announced my mental health task force, the President's Commission on Mental Health, excuse me, I have a mental health task force now at the Carbon Center, but this was the President's Commission on Mental Health. And we had a big ceremony, invited people from all over the country who were interested in mental health, the leaders in the field. And I was really excited, had great people, the best people in the country. The next day I picked up the Washington Post and not one word, not one word. I was really distressed. The New York Times had a good article, but there was not one word. And so then I fussed about it, and people, the press, some of the press people would come to, came to maybe one or two meetings, but we worked on, on those, in that task force, in that commission. And we met long hours and we worked. And finally, one of the press people said to me, well, Mrs. Carter, mental health is just not a sexy issue. Well, that made me mad. It really made me mad. So I was frustrated sometimes because they would cover the things that I didn't think was important, and they didn't cover. You know, I didn't want mental health covered because it was my project, but the stigma is so bad, and that if people out in the country know that it's an acceptable thing to work on, you know, it could help people out in the country. So I really wanted it to be covered. Um, so there were frustrating times, but I had things that I wanted to do when I came to the White House. You're listening to First Ladies In Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. In 2007, Rosalind Carter delivered the keynote address during part of a three-day conference focusing on the Carter presidency lessons for the 21st century. In 1977, the First Lady was still traditionally covered by reporters writing for the women's pages, um, and most of the attention was still focused on social matters. As Kathy said yesterday on the panel, the press was more interested in what I was going to wear um, than in the projects I intended to take on. They were, at that point, so interested in my inaugural gown. 
Um, and they wanted to know why I was only serving wine at state dinners rather than how I expected to improve care for people with mental illnesses. It was a very traditional and narrow view of the First Lady's role, and it presented my staff with a lot of problems. I remember when we first met to review the organization of the First Lady's office, there were four secretaries, social, press, appointments, and personal. No one to help with the things that I had planned to do. And I I had pledged in the campaign to have Jimmy uh, uh, start a President's Commission on, establish a President's Commission on Mental Health, uh, I wanted to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. I wanted to work on elderly issues. I'd seen so many people. Um, I, in the campaign, I had been to, I think, every uh, senior citizen's facility in the country. Um, I had all kinds of plans. Um, and after several weeks of study and planning, we created a brand-new office, Director of Projects. Can you believe that it took that long to have a Director of Projects? It still exists today. And, but still in Georgia, I think you might remember Jimmy cut my staff. But I did rely on volunteers, but I learned one thing very quickly, that it's very difficult for people to say no to the First Lady of the United States. So I could call on experts. Former President Carter and Rosalind Carter talked with C-SPAN in 1998 during a one-hour tour of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Museum and Library. In this portion, Rosalind Carter talks about their lives together in the White House. So I generally finish my work by 5 in the afternoon. And, and he would call me about 4.30 and say, we're going to jog in a little while, uh, we're going to play tennis or something. And so I had to stop planning anything after 4.30. And in the afternoon we would just... Do some, take some kind of exercise. Uh, if it was raining, we'd go down and bowl in the bowling alley downstairs in the White House and um, just have some time together. Mrs. Carter, as you sit in this office here, is there a moment that you remember in the time that you spent in the White House coming here? Um, I remember the first day, the first day when he was, um, after the inauguration, when I came walking in the door and he was sitting behind the, the desk. It was really... <laughs> impressive? It was impressive, <laughs> yes. But, um, and then um, I, was, I remember when the Panama Canal Treaties were signed and he called me when they got the last vote and I came running over to the Oval Office. That was special. But I was in and out. Um, the last day that we were in the White House, the day of the inauguration of President Reagan... I came over several times to tell him he had to come home and get dressed for the inauguration <laughs> because he was working, still working on the hostage situation. There were lots of momentous occasions in our White House life. I, I think Jimmy's greatest achievement was his human rights policy, um, which um, calls for freedom for people and, and the rights um, that they have around the world. And I think that since his presidency, that human rights policy has continued. Um, and so I think, as far as that's concerned, uh, we're better off because the, our country changed the way we conduct our foreign policy. We take human rights in these countries into consideration um, in our relationships with different countries. So I think we are better off in that way. Um, as far as freedom around the world, there are lots of people um, 
that are not free. And we have a lot of programs with the Carter Center, agriculture and health programs in some of the um, developing countries of the world. And we see that the people are not free and there are too many wars, too much suffering. I think um, anything we can do to um, help people uh, have a better and freer life. Um, we, we, our country should do it and we should do and we try to do it at the Carter Center. In November 1979, 52 U.S. diplomats and citizens were taken hostage when supporters of the Iranian Revolution took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. The hostages were held for 444 days and released on the day Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president in January 1981. Rosalind Carter spoke about the Iranian hostage crisis, how it framed the final year of the Carter presidency, and her husband's work to release the hostages during an interview with C-SPAN in 2013. It was awful. I look back now, I have memories of um, just waiting for the press conference in Iran to say what happened that day because we had no idea what was going on. And the only way we knew what was going on was when they would come out and announce it. And so, and it was just, you know, thinking about and thinking. We met with the families all along um, and thinking about the people whose whose um, family members were there and, and uh, what it was doing to Jimmy's uh, presidency. And it was awful. It was awful. But, uh, and I would go out. I would go out and campaign I had found out earlier that that I could, when a president goes out, he's so surrounded that um, people, he speaks to them, he says hello and so forth, but he doesn't get close enough to people to have conversations, you know, just normally like he would otherwise about what their hopes and dreams were, what they thought about what um, I was doing or what Jimmy was doing or anything that could help them. I had learned that early uh, when Jimmy was during his presidency. And, but I would go out and everybody would say, tell the president to do something and tell him to, he's got to do something. I would come home and I would say, why don't you do something? And he said, what do you want me to do? You want me to mine the harbors, which a lot of people were talking about. He said, and then have them bring out one prisoner every day and hang him in public. Well, maybe that's not the best thing to do. And, uh, but, um, it would, you know, I wanted it over. And of course he did too, everybody did. I mean, the people in the country, every night on um, new TV programs started and, and and nobody got over it at all. I mean, could get over it or just think about it because it was there every day, every, every night. It was awful. You're listening to Rosalind Carter in her own words. You'll hear her congressional testimony from 2011 as a former First Lady still advocating for her special causes. We're honored to have with us today former First Lady Rosalind Carter. We're all familiar with Ms. Carter's tireless advocacy alongside her husband, President Carter, on behalf of human rights and conflict resolution around the world. She is also a dedicated advocate for caregivers and mental health issues here at home. Mrs. Carter is president of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving at Georgia Southwestern State University, where she leads the Institute's efforts to promote the well-being of family caregivers throughout our country. She is an inspiration for many and a legend in her own right. 
I'm, I'm very pleased to be here this afternoon to speak about caregiving, an issue that is very important to me. It's been part of my life since I was 12 years old. Um, and my father was diagnosed with leukemia at age 44. We lived in a very small town, and all the neighbors rallied around. But I still vividly remember going to my secret hiding place, the outdoor privy, if you can believe that, to cry. That's where I could be alone. I was the oldest child, and I felt the burden of needing to help care for my father and my three younger siblings. Yet I was afraid and didn't always feel like being strong, but my mother depended on me. Less than a year after my father died, my mother's mother died, and my grandfather came to live with us. He was 70 and lived to be 95. My mother cared for him at home until he died. I helped as much as I could, but I was married and living away much of the time. During the last few years of his life, he was bedridden and totally depended on her, our family members, neighbors, and friends for all his needs. My story is not unique. But today, the informal support networks that were so much a part of my life in a small town, neighbors, extended family, the church, are not there for millions of Americans. Families are fractured and dispersed. Women, the traditional caregivers, are now an integral part of the workforce. Advances in medical science means we are living much longer, yet resources to enable us to live independently are sorely lacking. We face a national crisis in caregiving, especially for our elderly citizens. Most frail elderly and disabled people live at home today. About 90% of the care they need is provided by unpaid, informal caregivers, most often family members, providing tasks that only skilled nurses performed just a decade ago and with minimal preparation and training. Many of these caregivers are frail and elderly, elderly themselves and find the burdens of caregiving overwhelming. As we close our look at Rosalind Carter here on American History TV, you'll hear her account of the partnership and friendship she forged with her immediate predecessor, Betty Ford, a close relationship that mirrored the one between their husbands, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. And she'll talk about her legacy. Betty Ford was my friend, and I'm honored to be here today to help celebrate the life of this truly remarkable woman. I never imagined when we first met 40 years ago that we would develop such a close personal friendship. At that time, Betty was the wife of the Vice President of the United States. She had danced with the Martha Graham Dance Company and performed in Carnegie Hall. She was a leader in the fight for women's rights. And she had come to Georgia with the Michigan Art Train, a project taking six cars filled with great art to rural communities across the country. Jimmy was governor, and we invited Betty to stay at the governor's mansion. I was nervous. She was the most distinguished guest we had ever had. But when she arrived, she was so warm and friendly that she immediately put me at ease, and we had a good time together. Of course, I didn't tell her then that my husband was thinking about running for president. <laughs> The next time I met Betty was at the White House shortly after the 1976 election. It might have been a very awkward moment. I know from personal experience that it was a difficult time for her. Yet, she was just Betty, as gracious as always. As I assumed the responsibilities of First Lady, I had an excellent role model and 
a tough act to follow. Betty broke new ground in speaking out on women's issues. Her public disclosure of her own battle with breast cancer lifted the veil of secrecy from this terrible disease. She used the influence of the Office of First Lady to promote early detection, and millions of women are in her debt today. And she was never afraid to speak the truth, even about the most sensitive subjects, including her own struggles with alcohol and painkillers. She got some criticisms. I thought she was wonderful. And her honesty gave hope to others every single day. By her example, also helped me recover from Jimmy's loss in 1980. Having embraced the cause of better treatment for men and women recovering from alcoholism and chemical dependence, she worked tirelessly as former First Lady to establish the Betty Ford Center and showed me that there is life after the White House, and it can be a very full life. In 1984, we both participated in a panel at the Ford Presidential Library on the role of First Ladies. We found that our interest in addictive diseases and mental health came together in many ways and that we could be a stronger force if we worked as partners. And we did for many years. Sometimes uh, traveling to Washington to lobby for our causes especially parity for mental health and substance use disorders in all health insurance plans. And I am so glad she lived to see this happen. We didn't get everything we wanted, but we got a good start. I know that made her as happy as it made me. We talked about it. But when we go to Washington, she would round up the Republicans, I would round up the Democrats, and I think we were fairly effective most of the time. (laughs) After the 1984 conference, Betty wrote me a note that I still treasure in which she expressed her admiration for women who had the courage of their convictions and did what others were too timid to attempt. Isn't this the most appropriate description of Betty? Someone who was willing to do things a bit differently than they'd been done before. Someone who had the courage and grace to fight fear, stigma, and prejudice wherever she encountered it. And today it's almost impossible to imagine a time when people were afraid to reveal they had cancer or to speak publicly about personal struggles with alcohol or addiction. She was a tireless advocate for those struggling, some struggling alone, ashamed to seek help. It was a privilege to work with her to bring addiction and mental health problems into the light. Historians have said that our husbands, Jimmy and Jerry, developed a closer relationship than any other presidents after leaving the White House. I think Betty and I had a similar relationship. Well, in closing, I just want to add that Betty and I shared another passion, our husbands and our families. Her partnership with Jerry, both public and private, helped heal the nation and strengthen the family unit in its many varied forms. Her love of her children, Michael, Jack, Stephen, and Susan, was unbounded. And her grandchildren were a source of constant pleasure. When we got together later in life, we talked about our hopes and dreams uh, for our children and grandchildren and also our great-grandchildren. 
to you here who mourn the loss of your mother, your grandmother, and great-grandmother today. Jimmy and I extend our most sincere sympathies and want you to know of the deep love and respect we have for this extraordinary woman. It was my privilege to know her. In our final clip, Rosalind Carter speaks about her own legacy during a C-SPAN interview in 2013. Rosalind Carter, you've had 33 years mm-hmm. post-presidency, the longest in history mm-hmm. uh, now. Um, and you and President Carter have been very active. Mm-hmm. What do you think your legacy, first of all, as First Lady is? Or what would you like it to be? Well, I hope my legacy continues more than just First Lady, because Carter Sun has been an integral part of our lives, I would think, and our motto is waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. And um, I hope that I have contributed something to mental health uh, issues and help improve a little bit people, the lives of people living with mental illnesses. But I also hope, I mean, I have had great um, opportunities for so long now. And to go to Africa or one of those countries, we have programs in 70-something countries, and we go to Africa uh, two, three times a year. And to go to those villages, and now things are coming to fruition we've been working on all these years, like we've almost eradicated guinea worm. I mean, to go to a village where there's no longer guinea worm, it is a celebration. I mean, one of the good things about the Carter Center is we don't give money to the government. We send people in to teach the, the health people in that country how to do something. And we work with the people in the villages. Um, with, and, and the health department does too, and we work with them. And they do the work. I mean, to just to go to a village and explain to them about guinea worm, if you can get the um, chief to approve um, that's what you have to do. But if they see that or hear about it from another country, they're so happy you're there. But just to see, to go back when it's gone from a village or almost gone, and the hope it gives to them, that it, most of the time it's the first thing they have ever seen that was successful. And it's just so wonderful. Just to see the hope on their faces that something good is happening. <laughs> I didn't mean to get emotional. What's your advice to future first ladies or first husbands? Mm-hmm. Well, in the first place, I would say enjoy it, which is what Lady Bird told me. But um, <clears throat> I think um, I have learned that you can do anything you want to. They used to ask me if I thought the first lady ought to be paid. If, I, if you get paid, then I have to do what first lady is supposed to do. But you can do anything you want to, and it's such a great um, soapbox. I mean, it's just such a great opportunity. So I would, I would advise any first lady to do what she wanted to do. If she doesn't want... And another thing I learned is you're going to be criticized no matter what you do. I could have stayed there. White House poured tea, had receptions, and uh, I would have been criticized as much as I was criticized outside. Um, but what I did, but uh, and I got a lot of criticism. But um, 
you, you learn to live with it, as I said earlier. I mean, you just live with it. You expect it, and you live with it, and never let it influence me. Um, but I would just tell her also just to um, enjoy it and do what she wanted to do. And in the process, I know she'll uh, 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 another first lady will um, have things that she wants to do because women have changed in this time. You know, what women do now has changed from what they did when I grew up. I could be a secretary, a school teacher, a librarian, a few things. But uh, um, but now women, uh, most women, more active. Um, so I just do what you want to do and don't worry about the criticism. Next week, Nancy Reagan, the former Hollywood actress and First Lady of California, who deployed her keen political instincts in the White House to guide Ronald Reagan's presidency toward success, and who humanized the devastating impact of Alzheimer's disease with her care for the former president in his final years.